Hello everyone, my name is Annalise and you are listening to the second episode of my art history series, The Salon. Here I aim to take a deep dive into individual artists, paintings, or any other interesting art historical event, mainly from the Renaissance to the early modern period of the Northern and Southern Netherlands. I aim to release each episode in both an English and a Dutch version. Today, I will bring you the story of Katharina van Hemsen, a truly forgotten talent from Flanders' 16th century. For this episode, I've consulted Norma Stewart's master's thesis titled Sofonisba Aiguisola and Katharina van Hemsen, two exemplary women artists of the Renaissance, which she published in 2008. I've also consulted Professor van der Sichelis work Achacan Sangras from 1999, which is an exhibition catalog. You will find that I will use Professor van der Sichelis work very often for this podcast series. I've also studied one of the two existing monographs dedicated to Katharina van Hemsen. I've relied upon Caroline de Klippel's publication of 2004. Before I introduce you to Katharina van Hemsen, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about the historical context in which she arose as an artist, because this period was a very crucial and formative one for the visual arts. Katharina was born in the year of 1528 in Antwerp. And by this time, the Renaissance had taken full swing in Northern Europe. So why was this period, the Renaissance, such an important one for the humanities and the visual arts? Well, it's all in the name, Renaissance, which translates to rebirth. Coming out of the Middle Ages, which had often been considered the Dark Ages, for its violence, disease, and ignorance, philosophers started to imagine what life would be like and how much better it would be if we were to live according to the values and principles of the ancient Greek and Romans. They had always valued an emphasis on a well-rounded education in the arts, humanities, and sciences. And ancient philosophers such as Cicero really argued that one's self-improvement, one's individual amelioration, would stem from a good education. And this had been lost in the Middle Ages. So what if we revive the glorious principles and the emphasis on a good, well-rounded education from classical antiquity? The Italian scholar Francesco Petrarch was really the first one to raise these questions. He raised these questions because by the mid-14th century, he had watched for years how his beloved Rome lay in ruins, and he had watched the decay of ancient sculptures and monuments. And he deplored his contemporary society's lack of care for the beauty that had been left behind by the classical antiquity. No one seemed to care anymore. In a poem, he compared the city of Rome to an elderly person who had been left behind by their sons, and like a caged bird had been neglected. He called for a revival of the classical antiquity, not only in education, but also in the visual arts. Because 
he considered the art produced in the classical antiquity, in the sculptures and the architecture from classical antiquity to be much more pure and superior. And as the Renaissance spread through Europe throughout the 15th century, more scholars agreed with Petrarch's plea for a return to the classical antiquity in every way of life. And here I'd like to emphasize the effects of the Renaissance on the visual arts in particular. From the Renaissance grew the tradition of humanism, and humanists believe that one's self-improvement and worth originated from a well-rounded education that comprised of languages, grammar, rhetoric, and also the mastery of music and visual arts. Suddenly, it became very important for someone to be able to recite a poem, but also to paint and draw and play an instrument. The emphasis on the individual became very popular and important in the Renaissance. It is in this context also that the social status of artists improved, and with a greater admiration for the visual arts, also came an extended appreciation for the individual artist as well. As a result, self-portraits of artists became a staple in the rising and booming art market, and it quickly became a status symbol for one to own an artist's self-portrait. Today, we can compare self-portraits from the Renaissance to our modern business cards or LinkedIn profiles. It was a way of connecting and fostering a network of patrons and art collectors who wanted your work. And the genre of self-portraiture had been a fairly traditional one throughout the Renaissance until one woman came along and changed it forever. And this is where I'd like you to meet Katarina. Now that you know a little bit more about the historical environment in which Katarina arose as an artist, I'd like you to turn to her most famous work now, the self-portrait that changed art history forever. Her self-portrait, which she painted when she was only 20 years old in 1548, is iconic. It is incredibly important for art historians. And this is because she is the very first artist, woman or man, to paint themselves as they are working, as they are painting. This had never been done before in Western Europe. She is an innovator, a creative genius. And she came up with this motif. So look a little bit closer now. We see her sitting at her easel, holding five brushes in one hand, along with her palette. And in her right hand, she holds a brush. Look closely at the canvas now. She's painting a face. She's actively working. She portrays herself as a serious artist. Look a bit closer now. Do you notice how she really emphasizes her tools of the trade? 
her palette, her brushes, and even a mild stick which she holds in her left hand. It is the larger stick that she holds up against the canvas. And this was used by artists to help steady their hands as they were painting. And so this emphasis that she places on the tools of her trade can tell us today that she was really proud to show that she was an artist, that she was a painter. And this is new. This motif is new and this changed art history forever. And if you think about the first episode of Michalina Vautier and her self-portrait, it is a very similar image. Like Katarina, Michalina portrays herself in the middle of her work and it's as if we, the audience, the viewer, have walked in on her as she was painting and we have interrupted her and she looks up and makes eye contact with us. She is working. And this is new. So what did self-portraits of artists look like prior to Katarina's innovation? Well, I invite you to look at Albrecht Dürer's self-portrait made in the year 1500. He was a well-beloved, famous German artist, and as a way of making a name for himself, quite literally, he started to sign and date his paintings. But now that you look at this self-portrait, you can see that he doesn't portray himself as he's painting. Instead, he chooses to portray himself looking directly at the audience, making a very intense eye contact. And other artists around the same time have created similar self-portraits, such as Jakob Cornelis, who produced a very similar self-portrait between 1525 and 1530. So this kind of self-portrait had been quite traditional throughout the Renaissance. But no one had ever thought to portray themselves in the act of painting itself. And this is why I have chosen to dedicate the second episode of this podcast series to Katarina van Heemsen. Because she created a new motif, a new way of looking at the self-portrait that would continue to influence art history forever. And her 1548 self-portrait set an immensely important precedent for women artists in particular. This kind of self-representation was really a clear way of establishing one's place as a woman within the male-dominated art world. And many women artists have looked back at Katarina's innovative self-representation. Women artists such as Judith Lester, Artemisia Gentileschi, Sophonisba Anguissola, and the French Rococo artist Elisabeth Vigée-Lebrun. They have all used Katarina's new invention as a way of establishing and claiming their place within the art world. So now let's take a closer look at this historic self-portrait. 
I want to show you in which exact ways this masterpiece changed the course of art history, particularly for women artists all over Europe. Throughout my undergraduate, I've always been taught by my professors to look at paintings as if they were a puzzle or a riddle, and it is up to you to solve and understand it. So let's apply the same strategy to Katarina's self-portrait. Other than giving us an idea of Katarina's artistic style, her technique, and physical appearance, what other specific clues does she give us here? What is Katarina trying to tell us through her work? If we start to look at paintings as creative windows into the past, we can learn so much more about Katarina's intersectional place within her environment. First, I want you to pay close attention to Katarina's clothing here. Historians specialized in fashion have pointed out that Katarina's is dressed here in an outfit that was deemed highly appropriate for young women of the upper class and nobility in the southern Netherlands. She wears a beautiful dark blue dress with a high velvet collar adorned with embroidery. And she wears these beautiful red velvet sleeves. And the white cap you see her wearing here was also a very popular accessory for women at the time. But think about it. Would a painter wear these rich fabrics as they are painting? Would you wear your most beautiful outfit while painting? Probably not, right? And so the fact that she chooses to portray herself here wearing this beautiful and luxurious dress can tell us that she strongly wants to emphasize her elevated social status. And so while Katerina's family did not belong to the nobility, they did enjoy a significantly comfortable life. And we can see this through the clothes that Katerina is wearing here. So apart from the information that we can piece together about Katarina's social status through the depiction of her clothing, we can also learn about the gender roles that were alive in the Renaissance. And interestingly, Katarina's self-portrait reveals that she defied the expected behavioral traits set for young women at that time. Katarina lived through a very formative period for young women and the publication of one of the most influential humanist writers, that of the Italian Baldassare Castiglione, would have an immense impact on the social expectations set for young women in all over Europe. I am talking about the Book of the Courtier, published in 1528. And this book was immensely influential throughout the early modern period. And we can see the effects of the expectations in this book, in Katarina's work too. So first, I want to tell you a bit more about this book, because I think it's really important for you to understand what it communicated. It was printed in more than 30 editions and translated into many European languages. 
in Castiglione's book outlines how noblemen and women ought to behave and act in an honorable and respectable way. And he even outlined sex-specific hobbies for men and women to fulfill in their spare time. And so the format of this book consists of a lengthy conversation between the perfect gentlemen and perfect ladies. Castiglione communicates in his book that the most honorable women should be able to paint, sing, write, and recite poetry, and hold up a stimulating conversation with their male counterparts. Women are welcome to laugh, but never too loudly because this would interrupt or even derail the conversation. Women ought to be beautiful and graceful, but most importantly, noble women ought to carry themselves quietly, in the background, with a meek submissiveness. Because Castiglione's work remained extremely influential around Western Europe throughout the remainder of the 16th century and into the early modern period, we can safely assume that Catarina was very, very well aware of these expectations set for her sex in this work. But when we take a closer look at her self-portrait, we can learn that Catarina took Castiglione's long list of expectations for women and defied them, rejected them even. And let's see how she does this. Now let's take a closer look at Katarina's 1548 self-portrait to really learn in which specific way she defied the expectations set for women during the Renaissance. I really wonder what your first impressions are of this work. Because she seems to be displaying herself rather seriously, though quiet and introspective. And we can tell by the way she doesn't seek direct eye contact with the viewer. She looks past us. She doesn't seem to want to interact with us. And this seems to be adhering to Castiglione's expectation of women to be rather submissive and quiet. But at the same time, the whole genre of self-portraiture does exude a very strong sense of one's self-assurance and one's confidence. So I hope we can agree that perhaps at Yes, first glance, she seems to be adhering and confirming Castiglione's expectations. She's a serious but quiet woman, and she portrays herself in the act of painting, an approved and appropriate activity for the respectable Renaissance woman, according to Castiglione. But here I want to briefly pause and make something clear. When Castiglione advised women to take up painting, it was more meant as a sort of fun hobby or a fun way to pass the time. Not in a sense of taking up a professional career in painting. And this is the big difference between Castiglione's expectation and Catarina's self-representation as a professional artist. 
in the way that she carries herself here in this portrait and showing off all of her the tools that she uses i think it's clear that she is not just doing this in her spare time for fun this is her career her profession and this is a way in which she breaks with the tradition and with the expectations of women in the renaissance she has invented even this new mode of celebrating one's artistry and asserting her place as a woman artist within a male dominated art world of the 16th century and i think that we can read this painting as a discreet act of courage because she breaks the renaissance expectation for young women to behave in a manner that is quiet and submissive And so finally, I want to draw your attention to the inscription that she has left in her work. So, left to her face, she has written the Latin words "Ego Katarina de Hemesen me pinxit," which translates to "Katarina van Hemesen painted me," as if the painting is explaining it to us. And I think the fact that she writes her name so prominently next to her face gives you a very clear idea of her fundamental and unshakable confidence as a professional artist so who was katarina van hemsen As I've mentioned, she was born in Antwerp in 1528. And while we don't know very much about her mother, we do know that her father was a very prominent Antwerp artist called Jan Sanders van Hemsen. And he owned his studio and workshop in the family home where Katarina grew up. So we must assume that she learned the art of painting from her father. Her father enjoyed an extremely successful career, and in the same year Katarina painted her self-portrait in 1548, her father accepted the prestigious position of the Dean of Antwerp's Painters Guild, St. Luke. And for a very long period of time, this guild did not grant women artists membership. And so while her father was the guild's dean, And Katarina definitely possessed the technique, talent and skills required to become a member. We need to understand that her name does not appear in any of the records because of her sex. And you will find that this is a pattern that reoccurs in this series. Many of the women artists we will be discussing here had close ties to the art market and environment through male family members. And in Renaissance Flanders, women who wished to become artists were very much restricted from the male-dominated artistic society. And Katarina had a valuable connection through her father, who was a celebrated painter in Antwerp. And if you remember from our first episode, Michelina Watier held a similar kind of connection. Because her brothers held valuable positions within the Spanish military circles. She was able to portray her art to very rich and wealthy patrons in the arts. And so this is a trend that will reoccur because there were many obstacles that women artists had to face in this time. 
We also know that Katerina's husband was an artist, and he was a musician. His name was Kirsirian Moren, and he played at Antwerp's cathedral as the organist. Katerina's artistry did not go unnoticed. In the year 1555, Katerina and her husband received an invitation from Queen Mary of Hungary to accompany her entourage back to Spain, where the couple remained until the Queen's death in 1558. And just the fact that Katerina had been known to the Queen, who was a very well-known patron of the arts, speaks to Katerina's talent. Who was Mary of Hungary? And why is she so important in Katerina's story? Well, she was the sister of Emperor Charles V, who reigned over the Habsburg Kingdom, which comprised of the Netherlands and the Austrian, German, and Spanish territories, too. He appointed his sister as the regent of the Netherlands in 1530, a position she fulfilled until 1555. Mary was very well trained in the arts and humanities and enjoyed a Renaissance education that stimulated her love for the arts. She possessed numerous masterpieces, such as the world-famous Arnolfini portrait by Jan van Eyck. And while we have no official records that indicate the exact position that Katerina fulfilled at the court, we can assume that she would have predominantly fulfilled the position of a lady-in-waiting to the queen. While Katerina must have continued painting during her time at the court, she would not have been considered an official court painter. And this is because none of the works that she produced during the time at Queen Mary's court have been signed. And there was this unspoken rule that only the official and authorized court painters were allowed to sign their name to their work. And so the fact that Katerina did not sign her works indicates that she did not feel that she was allowed to overstep her place as lady-in-waiting and pose a possible competition for the authorized court painters. We know that Queen Mary left a significant pension to Katerina and her husband in the year she died of 1558. The couple moved back to the city of Antwerp that same year and stayed until at least 1561. Sadly, we don't have any official records that name Katerina or her husband dating after 1561. And some historians have argued that this is because the couple must have fled the city of Antwerp, as around this time the tensions were rapidly escalating between the Spanish Inquisition and the Protestants. So even though Katerina's professional career seemed to be rather short-lived, and we don't possess as many records of her travels and her work as we'd like, she did leave a distinct mark on art history.
We have come to the end of the second episode of my series on art history. I really hope you enjoyed learning about Katarina's artistic innovation and her life. And I hope that the next time you get the opportunity to visit a museum and you see a self-portrait by an artist who portrays himself at work, I hope, I hope that you remember that this motif was invented by a woman artist. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to stay in the know about future episodes, please visit the Salon's Instagram account. Thank you very much. Bye for now.